So, um, this series has been really good. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and by enjoyed it, I mean challenged by it wildly. Um, the last few weeks, particularly, have got pretty practical and um, being asked pretty serious questions about my life. Am I putting to death my sin? Am I fleeing from it? Am I being a doer of the word or am I just listening and not really paying attention? The series is called Faith Works, and it's not for any reason, uh, not for just a random title. It's because James, over and over again, is, is banging this drum loud and clear that faith isn't just something that stays in our heads. It's embodied. There's, there's, there's no separation, according to Christian thought, between what we understand about Jesus and how that's meant to affect our lives. In the words of James Smith, uh, we're not brains on a stick, our faith is embodied. It's not abstract. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not just a bunch of nice ideas to agree with. It's not meant to just stay in here. It's meant to affect change in our bodies. It pushes us into a life of obedience to Jesus. And if that's happening, then it goes beyond just ourselves, believing in Jesus, believing who he said he is, living a life of radical obedience, that affects those beyond ourselves. It affects those around you. It affects your co-workers, your colleagues. It affects your employees, your boss, your neighbors, your parents, your siblings, your kids, your spouse. There's nobody that around you that your faith in Jesus doesn't have an impact on. And this morning you have picked up, James is picking, uh, dealing in, diving into another important issue within the Christian church, and it's this issue of favoritism. Now, some sins are more conspicuous and more overt than others, right? It's pretty, to, it's pretty easy to tell when someone is absolutely drunk, right? And it's, it's pretty funny trying to hear them explain that they're not. It's pretty obvious when someone is taking the Lord's name in vain or, or blaspheming, usually. Other sins, though, were more covert and secret. People seem to get away with adultery more often than not. Unless you're an eyewitness, it's hard to prove. This is even more so the case with sins like jealousy and envy and bitterness or lust. And typically, we don't know if someone's struggling in these ways unless they let us in on them. Uh, there's a, a pastor in the States called Sam Storms who's inside I appreciate. And he, said, he suggests that the most secret sin of all may well be that of partiality and prejudice. It's so secret that not only can it not be seen or touched usually, we often deny that it exists at all. People might readily confess that they struggle with lust or with unforgiveness or bitterness, will rarely be honest enough to admit that they're prejudiced towards people who are different from them. The sin is not only secret, but it's sinister. It's hard to think of a sin that's more wicked and more contrary to the will of God than having feelings of superiority and condescension towards those who are different from us. We might look at someone whose skin color is different from ours and conclude that for that reason alone, they're inferior. Or maybe it's someone we know who went to a different school Maybe it's someone, maybe it's refugees, and we saw this just in the last couple of weeks, whenever around 30, uh, 30 people, um, 30 refugees landed on our shores and were hounded by particular parts of society, um, 
just because they had the audacity to seek asylum. Maybe it's the way people dress or the way people talk or any other way. Maybe we question someone's intelligence or common sense just based on the postcode that they live in or are from. And this list can go on endlessly. And my point is this, is that there's hardly a more unchristian, hardly a more vicious energy in the human soul than that of prejudice and the resultant partiality and discrimination with which we treat people who don't measure up to some standards that we put in place. And James pulls no punches in dealing with this in chapter 2 here. It's pretty harsh, some pointed things he has to say about people who are prejudiced and show partiality. In verse 4, we see he says uh, they're said to have evil thoughts. In verse 6, they dishonor others. Later on, they're committing sin and they're transgressors of the law in verse 9. And, but why is this so? Why is it such a heinous, such a grievous thing Hold prejudice in your heart and treat others with partiality? And the answer is found elsewhere in Scripture. And it relates to the character of God himself. In Romans 2, verse 11, Paul says that God shows no partiality. In that context, he's talking about God's just and righteous treatment of both Jews and Gentiles. And his point is that the distinction between them in terms of ethnicity doesn't register in God's heart. Again, in Acts 10, Peter this time declares that anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him, to God, because God shows no partiality. Later on, Paul in Ephesians commands masters to treat their bond servants, employees, servants, we'll deal with that another time, with fairness and kindness because with God, what? There is no partiality. God doesn't treat masters better or worse than their servants just because one is a master and the other is a servant. God doesn't operate on the basis of a double standard depending on your socioeconomic status, depending on your race, depending on the postcode that you're from or you live in. And because God doesn't behave like that, neither should his children. That's us. So the problem James is addressing in chapter 2 is the reality of prejudice and resultant lack of impartiality and how we treat people on their socioeconomic status. But in light of what we read in Romans 10 or 2 and Acts 10, I think it's, we're justified in extending the nature of this prejudice to issues of race and ethnicity. The, the, the word um, we're dealing with here, uh, showing favoritism, is to take it face value. So it's, it's, it's getting at the heart of making distinctions based on people on how we receive them, how we meet them, how we interact with them. And the point is this, how we treat others, uh, whether with honor or dishonor, should never be based on riches or race or any other reason. So uh, let's jump in and look at the illustration that James gives us here in the first uh, six or seven verses. Pretty easy to understand, I think. Uh, James um, gives this example of two men, could be two women, who walk into the church uh, gathering and you immediately start to notice differences between them. One is decked out in the finest of clothes, most expensive of jewelry. And the other is dressed in dirty oil clothes and is lacking, obviously, in financial resources. And it becomes pretty obvious from the start that one's maybe more likely to give generously to the church. One's maybe probably a good bit more likely to benefit you than the other. 
And so you lead the wealthy man or woman to the best seats in the house. And you tre- I don't actually know what the best seats in the house and church are. I mean, nobody likes sitting at the front. That's just pure scundering to people. That would humiliate anybody. So if you know what the best seats in the house are, answer's on a postcard. But the point being, you lead the, the, the wealthy person to the best seats in the house. You treat them with kindness and respect. The poor man or woman is marginalized, pushed off to the side, and maybe not even give, given a seat. Maybe shown a place on the floor, maybe told to wait in the foyer, or maybe just not let in at all. I think if I took like a poll, if I asked you all on your way out, or even on your way in before we look at this in depth, if, if what you think about favoritism, should we be doing that? And like, I think most of you would probably agree that it's not good. But I don't think this is a hypothetical issue that James is dealing with. I think the way that he is so blunt about it kind of shows that it's more than hypothetical. I get the impression it's a big issue among his readers. And sadly, the church has struggled with this ever since. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the gospel seriously and considered converting to Christianity. He believed that in Jesus, he could find a solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. When he entered the sanctuary, however, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and he didn't return. And he wrote in his, and he wrote in his autobiography, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And He did. That usher's prejudice not only betrayed Jesus, but turned a person away from trusting him as Savior. Now, I don't think that any of you are guilty of that kind of prejudice or partiality. But the truth stands that we are all inclined to behave like this. We have to ask ourselves why. What is going on beneath the surface of our lives that inclines our hearts to prejudice and to give preferential treatment? People for the wrong reasons. One reason we treat people poorly is because we know that they're unable to be of service to us materially and socially. In fact, the only thing that they might do is embarrass us in the presence of those whose influence we cherish. Conversely, we praise and pamper the rich in order to Uh, ingratiate ourselves to them so that they might remember us and their influence and power might spill over towards us. I once heard someone say that greatness in a man or woman is seen or measured in the sacrifice and love and generosity they display towards those who are in no position to do them any good whatsoever. So why then do do we cater towards rich and powerful and influential and ignore the poor and weak? Maybe if we dig a little deeper, we might uncover some greed and pride in our hearts. Maybe if we dig a bit deeper still, we get down to unbelief. Unbelief in the impermanent nature of riches and power. Unbelief in the fragile nature of reputation and fame. Unbelief in the ultimate superiority of spiritual wealth to material wealth. The failure or refusal, just a flat out failure refusal to believe that when we have Jesus, we have all that is needed for joy and for peace and for value in life. 
James knows this, and so we're going to turn to five ways, five reminders James gives us to pay it, as we pay attention to this favoritism in our hearts, five reminders for us to pay attention to. And the first one is from verse one, we are captivated by the glory of Christ. James says in verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I think that language is pretty interesting. The Lord of glory. Why emphasize that? You could put lots of other words in place of glory that would still be accurate to describe who Jesus is, right? But he chose the word glory. I'm going to suggest that the likely answer is at the heart of, our pre- heart of prejudice is our own craving for glory and for honor and praise. We want people uh, who are powerful and wealthy and influential to take notice of us, and we want to avoid the embarrassment that comes from being associated with the weak, with the impoverished, and with the inconsequential people. We, We crave glory from others, and we strive to avoid the loss of it. So we show partiality or give preferential treatment to those we we believe can provide us with glory, and we avoid those who we fear might undermine it. James wants us to see that if we know and love and trust in all that God is for us in Jesus, who is himself the Lord of glory, we won't be controlled by the craving for human praise and acceptance. If Christ himself is our glory, he's all the glory we need. If Christ himself is the security our souls so desperately desire, we won't seek that in others and what others can supply. So we have to ask ourselves why we seek the favor and approval of, a, of powerful and wealthy people, why we avoid being associated with those we mistakenly believe are beneath us. Why do we feel drawn to one group and not the other? It might be because we're craving that glory from others. Maybe we need to be reminded that if, if we genuinely know who Jesus is and walk daily in confident trust of all that he is and will be for you, if we draw moment by moment on the strength and security and joy and peace that he provides, what possible place is there for prejudice in the Christian heart? I think in verse two, there's something interesting there when he says, he makes reference to gold rings and fine clothing. It's as if he says, do you think that glory resides in man's earthly financial gain? Is glory to be found in the weight and worth and glisten of gold? Or maybe in modern language, is there something about a specific brand that you think will bring you glory? If you can recreate a particular shot on Instagram, if you have a particular aesthetic that some popular influencers might, if you can get the same palette, the same furniture, there's no, whatever way you compare it, the only glory to be found is in Jesus Christ. We are to be gripped by that glory alone. Secondly, we're to be gripped by the grace of Christ. After he finishes the illustration about the rich and poor entering the church's meeting in verses 1 to 4, we see that prejudice and partiality are inconsistent with the heart of God himself. And we see this in verse 5 by his choice of the poor to inherit eternal life. Jesus Christ, the same Lord of glory, comes down to the lonely and despised sinners like you and us, and he gave his life for the poorest of the poor, in order that we might be rich in him. Second Corinthians 8 says it like this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, 
so that by his poverty you might become rich. So the whole way through Scripture, God in his providence demonstrates that he chooses to show his grace greatly to the poor, to those who suffer with physical needs, and most importantly, to those who acknowledge their spiritual needs. So in short, James says that by neglecting the poor, we're negating the grace that lies at the heart of God. So to harbor prejudice in your heart is to belittle God and his sovereign work of saving whom he will. So to put it bluntly, in the words of John Piper, if we're ashamed of the poor, we're ashamed of God. Because God is not ashamed to choose the poor. Perhaps the best commentary on James 2 verse 5 is in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. I think this one's on the screen. There the Apostle Paul says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is Foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As a general rule, God has chosen the foolish and the weak rather than the wise and powerful, at least in terms of how the world judges wisdom and power. And God's motive was so that no one can boast about being chosen. God's desire was to orchestrate salvation so that everyone would be compelled to acknowledge that he alone is deserving of praise and glory. Now, not Paul, neither Paul or James are suggesting that all poor people are saved, that all rich people are lost. The point is that material poverty or material riches have no influence on God's electing choice. Poor aren't at a disadvantage and the rich don't have a leg up is the point. God's favor comes through God's grace, and that's what we are to be gripped by as his people. Thirdly, we are devoted to the law of Christ. In verse 8, James starts speaking about this royal law that's prescribed in Scripture. And from here, James is actually quoting the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18, if you need to make a note. And that's whenever God says to love your neighbor as yourself. And when James speaks about the law, it's, it's, it's important to know he's not talking about the moral codes, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He's talking about the law as understood uh, as the commands of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of the law, the fulfillment of it. He is God's words. And this law is summed up in two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Some of those famous words that Jesus ever spoke was building on Old Testament. And this is what James is building on here. Building on Jesus. He was building on the Old Testament scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. And James builds on that to the extent where he starts to bring home the reality that to show favoritism is to, sh- is to sin. Favoritism is sin. It might not seem as drastic as something like murder, but to James, favoritism is sin. It disrespects humans, people who are made in the image of God. We read in the Bible, man and woman made in the image of God, and it dishonors God. 
Favoritism disrespects humans and it dishonors God. And James tells us that when, when we break one law, we're guilty of breaking the whole thing. In verse 10, uh, where does it say that? Verse 10, uh, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. To show favoritism towards any man or woman on earth is to dishonor God. And this is a serious charge, which is what leads James to the next reminder. As God's people, we are mindful of the judgment of Christ. Listen, I, I don't get to preach often, and I'm happy to preach any passage I'm given. But if I'm honest, there's a part of me wishes that I didn't have to preach on judgment whenever it comes up. It doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. It's uncomfortable. But we need to preach on this because God's word says we need to preach on this. We can't just skip over parts because we don't like them. And it is serious, it matters. Because favoritism is such a serious sin, James immediately takes us to an awareness of divine judgment. And he reminds us that we will be judged according to our consistency of speech and action. In verse 12 and 13, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Because we will be judged. For judgment is without mercy to one who hasn't shown mercy. In short, our words will be judged. Jesus says this himself in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people have to account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. That just gives me the chills. I would rather not read that and have to deal with that. <laughs> Makes me think twice before I text something, or I say something, or I tweet something. Now, while words are a reflection of the hearts of our hearts, we shouldn't miss how our works relate to judgment too. We're judged by our words, but we're also judged by our works both for Jesus and for James. According to Scripture, our deeds, or lack thereof, will be judged. Now, don't hear me wrong. We're saved by faith alone, and by, by grace alone, in Christ alone. We, we're saved and not, what any, not by anything that we have done, by what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we preach that every week, and this week is no different. But, so it might not make sense to read something like this. It might sound like they're contrary, but they're not. They are deeply intertwined. We read through the whole of Scripture and we see that our faith is so, so embedded in how we act. And we see that in Romans 2, verses 6 to 11, the Apostle Paul, the one who espouses these great passages of being saved by faith alone, himself talks about the importance of paying attention to our works. Is this one on the screen too, maybe? Um, Romans 2, 6 to 11. He will render, yeah, cool. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? For God shows no partiality. In case you think that's a one-off, there's a similar idea in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, where Paul says, for we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, 
Do you hear that way is done in the body? Not what you've thought, what you've done in the body, whether good or worthless. Like Paul, James is telling us not to play around with favoritism, with words or with our actions. We'll be charged with for how we respond to what God has said is important. Remember what Jesus himself said when he was speaking to those who didn't feed the hungry, those who didn't clothe the naked or help the poor. The words of Jesus, depart from me, you who are cursed, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We have to stand before God one day and give an account for our words and for our actions or our lack of action when it comes to what God, and when it comes to that which God has said is most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. We need to be a people who speak and act with love. Now you might be thinking, how can I speak and act well enough to be okay before God? I, I could never do that, and that is true. And this is why we recognize that we can never do enough to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So we realize, fifthly, um, to our last reminder, the mercy of Christ. We are a reflection of the mercy of Christ. The message of the gospel is that we all need mercy We need that mercy that triumphs over judgment. I like that that's the last line of this little passage. It doesn't leave us without good news. Mercy always wins. And we praise God that he brings justice and mercy together in the cross. And you and I are declared right before God based on nothing that we've done but everything that Jesus has done. And James is saying that when you've experienced that kind of mercy... You clearly know how to show mercy to others. God's mercy in you overflows from you. As you have received mercy, so you extend mercy. And that's just as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? If you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive paper, paper, don't forgive paper, don't ever, (laughs) paper, you know that paper that you need to forgive. If you need to forgive people, if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. When you're forgiven of your sins, you're compelled to forgive others. As you've received mercy, so you extend mercy. But the converse of this, the opposite of this, is is humbling. If we don't extend mercy, we're demonstrating that we haven't received it. Him says that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This isn't saying that we need to be careful to others uh, in order to earn God's mercy before God. Just to emphasize that again. You don't earn mercy. It's, it's mercy by definition because it's, that's not something you earn. This text is just saying that you can tell who has received mercy from God by the way they show mercy to others. Or if mercy is evident in someone's life and clearly Christ by his mercy is dwelling in them. If mercy, on the other hand, is not evident in them, then they may be wondered to there may be a reason to wonder whether Christ, by his mercy, is dwelling in them. And Friends, we have been shown great mercy, haven't we? Mercy that extends beyond what we consider our greatest sin. Mercy that extends beyond however many sins you have committed. And if you're not a follower of Jesus right now, there's a chance that mercy is appealing to you right now. And if that's the case and you want to know more about faith, please come speak to me. Come speak to Andrew or someone else. We would love to introduce you to this Jesus who offers mercy after mercy, grace upon grace. 
for the rest of us who are following Jesus, this, book's ask, this book asks us some very direct questions for how we're living our lives. And as we, can, as we start to think about coming to communion, I want to invite you to take a minute and reflect. The Bible's pretty clear that communion isn't meant to be this absent-minded act. We're not just meant to go through the motions and not consider the importance of them. We're meant to check ourselves because we believe that the Holy Spirit is real and if, if we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and convicts us, points us towards Jesus. So I want to invite you to take a moment, close your eyes if you want, And just reflect on the words from James. Have you shown favoritism in your life? Is there something in your mind? Is there, it could have been anywhere. Is there, is, has there been an op, a moment where you have not invited someone to your home because of some sort of partiality or prejudice? Has it stopped you from spending, someone, spending time with someone in your workplace? Is there a member of your family that you're ignoring? Are we harboring any racism, any sectarianism at all? And if so, there's grace for that. The Bible says we confess our sins to God. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To those of you who have felt the sting of rejection because you haven't been favored, hear this, that God the Father through the work of the Son on the cross, has fully, unequivocally, warmly welcomed you to into his family. You have a seat at the table. May the Spirit remind you of that today. Just before, we fin- before I finish up, I want to tell a story as we come to communion. Arthur Wellesley was the fir- first Duke of Wellington, and one of the most famous and uh, well-known men of the 19th century. The Duke was a decorated soldier and statesman and even became British Prime Minister. But what the Duke of Wellington is most famous for is being the commanding officer um, of the army when, at the, uh, when they defeated Napoleon Bonaparte and the French army at the Battle of Waterloo in the year 1815. Bet you didn't think you'd get a history lesson. Interesting, though, this Duke of Wellington was a man of faith, and whenever he wasn't off on these um, <laughs> missions for the British Empire, he would regularly take communion at his local church. And the tradition there was that parishioners would come down the aisle and would be served by the minister who would administer the sacraments. Um, Anglicans, I guess. And when the Duke of Wellington was at the table, nobody else dared come forward until he finished. One day, at at the height of the Duke's fame and power, he was taking communion when a poorly dressed elderly man came down the aisle, reached the communion table, and knelt down at the side of the Duke of Wellington. Immediately, a bit of tension started to build among the rest of the parishioners, even a bit of commotion to interrupt the reverent silence. Someone even came down and touched the man, the poor man on the shoulder, and whispered to him to move further away from the duke, or better still, leave and come back when the duke's finished. But the great army commander had seen the meaning of the touch in the shoulder and perhaps even heard the whisper in the old man's ear, and the Duke of Wellington quickly clasped the old man's hand and prevented him from standing up. And he said in a respectful but firm whisper to the elderly gentleman, don't move, we're all equal here. And this is true, we come to communion recognizing how Jesus, 
the eternal Son of glory, condescended, put on flesh and blood, came to earth, lived not as a deity, not as a king, but as a servant. So much a servant that he went to death. He went to the cross for us. And on the cross, his blood was spilled for us. His body was torn to shreds for us. And in doing so, he lifted us from death to life. He came down from heaven to earth and lifted us up to those heavenly places. We're all equal there. There's nobody who's better than another. Jesus was the only one who could have been like shown favoritism, but he forsook that, forsake that. Put that aside to come and serve us. This is what we remember when we come to the table. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Come, um, send people, one person down. Anyone comes down, is that right? Everybody comes down. Uh, one from each bubble, come down, take some, bring it back to whoever you're with. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. The, the, um, the parts that aren't sitting on the tray over on this side are non-alcoholic wine, if that's something that you would prefer. If you're not a Christian, I ask you to refrain from this meal. Um, instead, come speak to us. We want to introduce you to who Jesus is. Um, how much he loves you. Um, um, yeah, we can, we can uh, talk about some more there. But I'll hand over to James as we sing. Let's stand as we come to, to worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. For how piercing it is that is truly a light to our feet. It shows us who you are, how good you are, what you have done for us. That you set aside the favoritism you could have been shown in order to rescue us, to redeem us. You have shown us mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have shown partiality or prejudice. May we be a people who are the opposite, who go out of our way to love the neighbor. And may we become a people who are known for that, Lord. Work in our hearts, Lord. Make us more like your son, Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.